you like to give a shout out to your dad for my new show? Yeah, I'd love to. Hey, dad, keep flying high. Love ya. G'day, dad. G'day to my old man. G'day, dad. Hey, dad. Hello, dad. Who is in heaven? Hi, dad. Do you want to say hi to your dad? Hi, dad. Hey, dad. Hello, dad. Hey, dad. Hello, dad. Thanks for everything, dad. Hi, dad. Hello, pop. Happy birthday, dad. Hi, dad. How's it going, dad? Thanks, dad. Hello, papa. Oi, Javi, old bastard. Hey, dad. Hello, dad. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, I, I love you. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. Hi, dad. Where the hell are you? G'day, dad. Hey, dad. Yes. I do love that intro. Lots of different dads getting different shout-outs. I also love that intro because it means Father Figures is on the airwaves for another evening. Welcome to the program. You are tuned into Sin Nation, and I am your childless but dad-loving host, nonetheless, Victor. Last week I opened with a little dad fact, and I'm going to do the same tonight. This one is credited to the Guinness World Records, which means I expect you to all take it as fact, a father fact, in fact. Whew, a few tongue twisters to start off. The father with the most children from one woman is Fyodor Vasilev. Him and his wife had 69 children in the 1700s. They were a peasant couple in Russia and gave birth to the children from 1725 to 1765. A monastery in St. Petersburg recorded every birth over the 40 years. And to me, what's most impressive, well, I think there's two things. Only two of the children didn't survive their infant years. That's pretty successful. And the, the manner in which they were born, 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. So yeah, 16 times two is 32. 7 times 3 is 21, and 4 times 4 is 16. So 69 kids, and not much 69 going on between the couple. Fascinating and very impressive for the mother to go through those births as a peasant in Russia 300 years ago. Scientists have also since vouched that it is actually possible for a woman to have 27 pregnancies throughout her fertile years. And speaking of facts or just impressive stories that we like to believe, in Asia, supreme ruler of one of the world's biggest empires, Genghis Khan, had said to have fathered at least a 1,000 kids. He got to four figures, and genetic analysis showed him to be a male line ancestor to 0.5% of the world's population today. Simply mind-boggling. I can't imagine being responsible for the greatest empire and at least a 1,000 kids, probably can't imagine he was a great father either. It's also said a dad in Morocco has fathered over 800 kids with multiple women. So how can I relate all this to anything? Apart from the ludicrousness that the three dads have fathered thousands of kids between them. Well, those three fathers are from different times of history and different places and cultures around the world. And that's what tonight is all about on Father Figures. It will be focused here on Australia, but it's dads from different cultures. Australia can be typically known for marvellous coastal landscapes, deserted dry country, Foster's beer, chuck and shrimps on the BBQ and kangaroos. But what lots of outsiders don't realise, we are a really multicultural society. So why not take a good look at dads from different cultures? I have two dads coming on the show and a first for Fada figures is a politician guest, Iranian-born Labor Senator Sam Dastiari came into the studio last week and we had a great chat about his 
migration story and journey to fatherhood. I'll also be calling Mark Mayo all the way from the top end. I'll be chatting to Mark live in Darwin about being a parent in the Northern Territory, multiculturalism, Indigenous fathers and his own upbringing. I can't wait. A ripper show lined up. There's only half as many guests as there were on last week's show, so we can have some in-depth discussion. I should mention all the shows are podcasts, so you can catch up on episodes, listen back to Fact Check Me or Share It Round. Last week's episode about gay dads is online. I even used Facebook's rainbow filter to change the podcast's wonderful logo and support same-sex marriage. It's actually the first time Facebook has used their filter feature, which allows you to put a banner at the bottom of your profile picture to support a political or social cause here in Australia. So the first time they've done that. And Facebook are actually partners of Sydney's Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Festival. So it's certainly a topical issue right now. And please listen to last week's engaging show. It was discussing gay parents and discover that dads are dads, parents are parents, and love is love. And there's one more week to go for... The Father Figures competition, simply review the show on iTunes and go in the running to win a world's best father mug. Give it to your dad, drink out of it proudly at work or straight to the pool room. Get reviewing before next week to get in the draw. I'd love enough entries so I can rattle some sort of container into the microphone next week when I draw the winner out live. Go over to sin.org.au, Facebook or iTunes and search Father Figures for all you need. Before we get moving to dad news and for all those loyal listeners or news junkies, you may remember back a few months to an early episode, I had this on dad news. Sagadeep Singh Aroa, he is taking a Melbourne Christian school to court over their refusal to enrol his son because he wears a turban. Uh, the school insists it has the right to set the uniform its students wear, whereas Sagadeep believes the school is breaching the Equal Opportunity Act. It's a pretty topical one, this one, but I guess it's just good to see a dad sticking up for his kid, and it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Well, the case has been resolved. In a win for Melbourne father Sagadeep Singh Aroa and his son Sidhak, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal ruled that the Melton Christian School breached the Equal Opportunity Act, a step towards religious and cultural freedom. So his son can now attend the school and wear his turban. I think it was important to reflect on that because after tonight's news, we will be discussing dads from different cultures. Let's dip into tonight's Dad Scoop, otherwise known as Dad News. TV program, my life is made. I can make a fresh start. Dad news! Dad news! It's time for Dads in the News. I'm going to fly through the news tonight because there are some interesting guests coming up. Firstly, in dad news, another presidential dad is making headlines for all the wrong reasons. The Philippines president, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, not so good with names, nicknamed the Punisher, so that's a bit easier for me to pronounce, has continued his unprecedented campaign to eradicate illegal drugs in the country. Since he assumed office in the middle of last year, police have reported killing more than 3,800 people in anti-drug operations, while thousands of others have been murdered in unexplained circumstances. And the newest revelations? 
He said his son would be killed if he is found to be involved in the drug trade. And his son is accused of drug trafficking, which he does deny. But if found guilty, his dad and the president of the Philippines said he would have his son killed. Pretty brutal father-son relationship there. I mentioned earlier about dads who have fathered huge families in history. Well, there is one modern man who's making history at the moment. A dad in the UK has been an unlicensed sperm donor for 16 years, donating once a week. He charges £50 for what he calls his magic potion pot. (laughs) He sells to clients through Facebook. Uh, It's pretty crazy. He estimates he has 800 kids and has made £40,000 from his venture. Have a listen to him speaking about it to the BBC. Most of the people I help out tend to be from Facebook. When people join the site, I see that I see their name and I send them a, a message explaining about the service I provide. You know, because it's like an artificial insemination only, and I think they they like the the fact that I do that. I'm not going to try and get anything funny out of them. So people say, oh, "Am I being irresponsible by not keeping track on them all?" Well, I, I do if they want to be keep kept track of. But a lot of people tend to disappear. Then when the kids are older, I start getting messages saying, "Oh, here's a picture of such and such. A three years old. We want another one." So I've got kids all the way from Spain to Taiwan, so many countries. So it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit strange. I've got a bigger spread than Genghis Khan. I don't think I've caught him up with my numbers yet, but I think I will because I don't plan to stop. Is there, is, there some, is there some sort of ego involved in it that you think that you're such a wonderful person you want to spread your genes to <laughs> um, all these different women? I didn't get, like, for example, I didn't get my first girlfriend until about 18 and a half. I thought, oh God, I'm never going to have any, get married and have kids. So I think you never know, psych, sort of psychologists would say, wouldn't they? Oh, you know, that's where it will stem from. That's just a guess. I've never been to one. I wanna, I'd like to get the world record ever. Make sure no one's going to break it, get as many as possible. Usually about one a week pops out. So I reckon I've got about 800 or so so far. So within about four years, I'd like to crack a thousand. It's certainly cheaper and easier than a fertility clinic, but I just can't imagine the effects, safety issues and repercussions of a man selling sperm to 800 people over Facebook. I think there's definitely more to being a father than donating sperm, but hey, maybe he's allowing some people to become good dads who wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise. Apparently, women can actually ask for child support from an unlicensed donor too, so I wonder if he's had any people asking for a bit of child support from him. There are lots of complications, but quite a story, I think. And to finish, dad news in sport. There was a boxing weigh-in, and one fighter was dealt a low bow by his opponent's son about a week ago. Billy Joe Saunders and Willie Monroe Jr. were on stage making weight and presenting for the media. And Billy Saunders' son got on the scales and posed for the cameras and, and was having a laugh, but his dad's opponent gave him a friendly hair ruffle, and he went and punched him in the groin, yeah. The, the kid responded to the pat on the head by punching the boxer below the belt. Not sure if it's what you want to see your son doing, but his dad seemed unfazed and almost proud. Okay, dad news is done and time for our first taste of music tonight and keeping on the theme of a show all about dads. The tracks are all father-related. The first one is from a man who helped define Motown Records, a label we just love playing on father figures. It's Marvin Gaye. The man loves to sing about love, but behind closed doors, his father gave him a pretty rough upbringing. Marvin Gaye likened his father to a very peculiar, changeable, cruel and all-powerful king. 
His dad was a minister but loved to cross-dress behind closed doors. He seemed to take out his troubles with conflicting identity on his son and tragically Marvin Gaye was shot and killed by his abusive dad after an argument. The song and the whole What's Going On album discusses the struggles of black people in America. Marvin Gaye was told not to delve into political and social commentary to avoid alienating himself from pop audiences. But despite the advice, this whole album illustrates issues during the 1960s and 70s like police brutality, drug abuse, environmental issues, anti-war and black power issues. We'll be talking about dads from different cultures right after this. Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can comprehend You know we've got to find a way To bring some love and get here today Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Unfortunately, I don't have the rights to podcast the music I play on Sid Nation. I guess that just means you'll need to listen live every Wednesday from 7.30pm for all the wonderful dad tracks. Just stream it at sin.org.au or listen on your digital radio. We're back on Farter Figures, tuned to Sin Nation. Thanks to Marvin Gaye for that last piece of music. Let's jump into this evening's theme, Dads from Different Cultures. Australia is a society of people from a rich diversity of cultural, ethnic, linguistic and religious backgrounds. You know, one in four Australians are born overseas and Australia also has an Indigenous history to be recognised and respected. Of course, the world is full of different cultures and each one will have different ways of life. I researched a few interesting cultures in terms of their fathering. The Aka fathers come from a pygmy tribe living in Central Africa. A man who studied them called them the world's best fathers. That's because they spend so much time in reach of their infants. Barry Hewlett, the man who studied the Aka tribe, said the dads are within reach of their infants more than fathers in any other cultural groups on the planet. Then there are the Pashtu farmers in Afghanistan. The women work harder than men and therefore the burden of childcare falls to the fathers. So 
different cultures, different dads, different people. I've got two guests on tonight because I wanted to give them as much airtime as they deserve. One is a migrant from Iran and the other is an Indigenous dad in the Northern Territory. These guests are the few that represent the many. They have interesting stories to tell, so I won't say much more. I'll let them do that. The first dad is also a Labor senator, so it presented me with a great opportunity to make a dramatic introduction. I'm so happy I got to put this together for the first politician on Fada Figures. The start of Parliament has been partly overshadowed by revelations a company with links to the Chinese government reimbursed a Labor frontbencher's debt. Senator Sam Dastiari admits he was wrong. Senator Sam Dastiari. I'm joined by Labor Senator and media tart, Sam Dastiari. Please welcome Senator Sam Dastiari. Hear ye, hear ye. To order, I now call Senator Dastiari to make his first speech. Mr President, with humility and sincerity. If you want an example of one single individual in Australian politics who represents everything that's gone wrong with the system, well, here he is, Labor Senator Sam Dastiari. Our main guest is Sam Dastiari. In the studio with us is Senator Sam Dastiari. I'm shocked and horrified. Pauline, right now I will invite you to join me in Sydney and I will take you out for a halal snack pack. Miss Hanson, when I look at your policy document that turns around and says that we should be banning Muslims from coming to this country. Now, Senator Sam Bastiari has been the chair of a committee in the Senate that has done some remarkable things. Now, some senators may not be aware of what a halal snack pack is. A halal snack pack is a styrofoam container containing two incredible ingredients, chips and halal meat. And with that, I welcome you to Sam Dastiari, a young politician, a dad, and the man who introduced Pauline Hanson to Halal Snack Packs. This is an unedited chat from last Friday when Sam kindly came into the studio with me. It's a bit longer than what we usually play on Fada Figures, but I think it deserves the airtime. Have a listen to me and Sam in the studio. Sam, thanks for coming on Fada Figures. You're the first politician on the show, but I've had over 20 dads, so I'm sure you'll fit in perfectly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, and it's, it's great to be here. I've got to say, this is a very impressive studio. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? So you, I think we can start off with a bit about your story. You migrated from, Australia, uh, from Iran to Australia in 1988, so how hard was that for your dad uh, to try and bring you up on two very different cultures? Look... I think there's this huge sense of almost guilt that second-generation ethnic fathers have. And I look at it from my perspective. So my father, who was an amazing, who is an amazing man, he studied to be an engineer in Iran. There was the Islamic Revolution in 79. Uh, my parents were slated for execution. Um, they, in the early 80s, fled Iran and came... Um, uh, to, to Australia, and by the time we got to Australia and were accepted, uh, was 1988. So I came to Australia when I was five, and I had that very, very typical migrant story, which is that, you know, my parents sacrificed everything. So my father, very bright man, engineer, came to Australia, drove taxis for, for many, many years. Um, you know, again, you talk to any taxi driver, Uber driver who's a migrant, they'll tell you a story about how they kind of came across the seas and did this. And then... 
uh, and then they went from that into small business. But the problem for them was always this. They were not... Australian identity, Australian culture is quite accepting and has been quite accepting of us as migrants and was accepting, but they weren't part of it. And they didn't understand it. So in a weird way, you know, my parents always instilled kind of our kind of ethnic culture and our Iranian culture into us. But it was my sister and I who were really teaching our parents about what it meant to be Australian. We had a lot more exposure, obviously, in the school system and other places than they did. And I don't know, it's almost a role reversal that I think a lot of young ethnic Australians will be able to tell you. And just to give you the stats that are amazing, right? You know, Fort in Melbourne, which we're in right now, 40% 40% of people in Melbourne were not born in Australia. That is a tremendous figure. It's 25% across the country, but 40% in Melbourne and Sydney. You know, over 65% of people living in Melbourne have a parent who was not born in Australia. So this idea of multiculturalism, ethnicity, and parenting, and how it all relates to each other, isn't this kind of fringe issue. It's everywhere. It applies to so many people. Yeah, that's that's it. Some impressive stats. But you also changed your name from Sahan to Sam. I did. To yeah. fit in, I guess. Yeah, I did. And it looked a, a desperate attempt to fit in, right? I mean, we came here and uh, we came as, as obviously uh, migrants. Um, and I have this theory, and that's this. Adults love being individual. Right, love being different. When you're an adult, you, know, you talk to people and they always want to, you're at a dinner party or at a bar or someone, everyone wants to explain why they're special, why they're different. I'm different because of this. I'm different because of that. And a lot of people I know now in their 30s are kind of, I'm different because of my ethnic heritage or my ethnic culture. And they love it and they embrace it. And that's beautiful. But kids don't. Kids don't want to be different. Kids want to fit in. That's what kids want, right? Kids want to belong. Kids want to be accepted as part of, uh, society. And so kids do desperate things to do that. Now, for me, you know, uh, to fit in, I changed my name. My name was Sahand, which is this beautiful mountain on the border of Azerbaijan, Iran, and Turkey, just this gorgeous, gorgeous mountain. I changed it to Sam. My sister changed her name from Ozadeh, which means freedom, to Az. My mother changed her name from Elahe to Ella. Um, and you do these things because, you know, you want to fit in, uh, you want to belong. You want to be accepted. And I, I, I believe, you know, from parenting and from a father's perspective too, it was hard for my dad. Of course it's hard when, you know, it's quite emasculating, I think, coming across to another country, not knowing the culture, and having your kids have to play such a role in kind of teaching you what it means to be Australian rather than you teach them. Mm. And so if your mum and your sister and you all change your names but your dad didn't? Well, his name was Nasser, so it was kind of easy enough, yeah. right? And how know? did he feel about... Um, um, well, uh, everyone... Me in particular, well, I'm the only one who kind of did it properly through Depot. Oh, look, I, I think they... Uh, I mean, they understood it. Of course they understood it. But no, I think a part of them felt like we were rejecting their identity and rejecting who they were. Um, and again, it's... You know, you have this with these migrant communities. Uh, and don't get me wrong, what happens is... And this is the migrant story in Australia. Your parents come to sacrifice everything so that the kids have a better opportunity. Now, you could be Vietnamese, you can be Italian, you can be Greek, you can be, you know, obviously I'm Iranian from, um, but you could be Middle Eastern, you can be Eastern European, wherever. The general principle is that people, Chinese, people give up and parents kind of give up something for their child, give up something for their kid. And that is the kind of the migrant story in Australia. And... Where I think that, that 
you know, in doing so, though, you end up, you also, and this is the bit that is kind of tragic about it, there is not one ethnic child in this country that at one point hasn't been ashamed of their parents or embarrassed by the fact their parents are different. And none of them are proud of it. But every ethnic kid will relate to the time where there was something about their parents that, that truly kind of embarrassed them. Hmm. Yeah. It's pretty... Sad in some ways, it I is, guess. It is, it is. But, but, but here, here is the bit that, that, that bothers me too, right? When we, we talk about being a father, right? So I have two kids. Uh, my daughters are four and six, right? Hannah and Eloise. Now, my wife is, you know, fifth generation Brit, you know, um, you know, quote unquote Aussie, you know, if that means anything, because I think being migrant means you're Aussie as well, but, but Aussie in the kind of traditional kind of Anglo-Celtic kind of way. And here's the question I always, this is the bit that I kind of, that bothers me about it. So... When you're an ethnic kid, uh, there's always that kind of, especially when your parents have made big sacrifices, as, as my parents have done, you have this kind of drive to succeed, drive to be successful. It drives you, right? It's that sense of, uh, for a lot of people, it's a lot of pressure as well, but it's the whole, they gave up so much so that I could do this, I have to make the most of it. Right? And, and a lot of them do. A lot of the first-generation migrant kids do really, really well in Australia. But, but here's the rub. At the same time, I've got my daughters who are six and four, and I spent half the year in Canberra, right? You know, Parliament sits half the year. I travel a lot. You know, in Melbourne, obviously, now I've been here for three days. Uh, it's school holidays in Sydney, you know, you travel and you're away from the kids so much. And part of that is because of that drive set. And you ask yourself this. I made all the... My parents made all these. My father made all these sacrifices for me to be able to do this. And for me to do this, am I asking my kids to make a sacrifice for me as well. Like, is it incredibly selfish to expect that two generations, right, my father who gave up, so, and my mother gave up so much to come to Australia, and my kids who, you know, I'm effectively a fly-in, you know, if you're in politics, you're a fly-in, fly-out father. You are, right? I mean, the, you know, all the studies will tell you. You can be an amazing parent, but at the end of the day, you are only there half the year. Right, so as good as you are, and you can be great, and there are amazing parents out there, and I think that you know, but, it, but you're only there half the year. You can, you can pussyfoot around it as much as you want. You're not there, um, and so to what extent have I asked, and are you asking as a parent, as a father, my kids to make two lots of sacrifices, the same sacrifices my parents made, and is that fair or is that incredibly selfish? Mm, do you ask your kids? What, are they a bit young for them yeah, to yeah, understand but, but, it at this stage? Yeah, they're too young. And here's the problem, right? Here's what I'd love. I'd love for my kids to turn around at the end of it and go, oh, Daddy really believed in his causes. Daddy was really passionate. Daddy was, you know, um, you know, you know, Dad always fought for his beliefs, this and that, right? Well, I worry they grow up and they say, oh, Dad, yeah, Dad was never around. Right? Dad was never around. And, of course, you always want it to be the later. Right, of course you do, right? Every, every parent wants their kids to look back and go, okay, proud we have that, right? What worries, um, um, well, sorry, the former, but what worries me is that at the end of it, and, you know, they're too young now, but when they're 18, 20, they go back and they say, oh, yeah, day day was never there. Mm. Which wouldn't have been an unreasonable thing for them to say either. Yeah, it's a tough one, though. It is, it is, and it kind of it keeps you awake at night. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's horrible. And, and as a dad, how important is it for you to sort of uh, tell them about your cultural background and then also because I know that you're a non-practicing Muslim but mm. your, your wife isn't a Muslim. No, 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 no. So, so yeah, and, and the concept of being a non-practicing Muslim, by the way, is so hard for people to understand, 
right? Which is strange for me because most of my mates are some variation of non-practicing Christian, right? Like, you know, like most of my mates, God, the last time they were in a church was, well, was for their own wedding. Or someone else's wedding, and they may go back once a year, but they don't even do that anymore. You know, they used to maybe used to go at Christmas when they were kids. They don't even do that anymore, right? And but the idea, and this is a really good point, right? Identity, identity matters. Identity matters. And when I was growing up in Australia, I had I had two real issues that I struggled with. I struggled with my um, uh, religious identity about what it meant to be a non-practicing Muslim. And I struggle with my ethnic identity about what it means to be a migrant, what it means to be an ethnic in Australia. Um, my two girls, I think, will find that a lot easier. Um, but for me, it's very, very important. I think it's beautiful, right? I want them to be able to enjoy and participate in parts of Persian culture as their own identity, right? I, I love the idea for them to be able to celebrate Persian New Year, which is in March, to be able to do the festivals, to kind of identify you know, with their kind of Iranian heritage and culture. Um, uh, they're going to hopefully be doing um, a little bit of kind of Persian classes to learn just a little bit of basic language. And I think it's good for them, right? But, but it's good for them. They'll resent it and they'll hate it when they're kids. But um, I, it's good for them because, you know, identity is such an important thing. And, and having your own identity, understanding your own identity is so important, even when kids kind of want to reject it. Mm-hmm. But you also uh, renounced your... Iranian citizenship. Yeah. Well, had to, yeah. yeah, well, yeah <laughs> so if you haven't read about it, it's a citizen, you can't run for parliament yeah. if you don't. No, I know, yeah. but um, sort of do you think that has an impact on your identity or their identity? Well, probably less so because of the paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. So when we came to Australia, we became Australian, right? And so the second we came to Australia, you know, I identified as being Australian. But, but, but here's the difference, right? It's very easy when you come quite young. So I came when I was, you know, before I turned five. So for me, it was always easy. I kind of knew who I was. I'm an Australian with Iranian heritage. There are those who come a lot later in life. It's a lot harder for because then they're Iranians living in Australia. You know, the identity for them kind of becomes a bit harder. But I'll tell you this one thing that, that was interesting for me. So about six weeks ago, I went back to the small town I was born in in northern Iran I went back with a film crew with Australian Story. It was kind of an ABC doco. Yeah, I've watched it. Yeah, which was you know an ABC conspiracy apparently to <laughs> rehabilitate me. But anyway, I go back, and I go back to the street I was born in, and I'm there with my mother and father who'd flown in, and this family house that we had there, this was where I was born. This was where my mother was born. This is where, and when I say I was born, I was. I was taken back into about three hours after at the hospital. But it was when my mother was born. This is where my great-grandmother had my grandmother, so my great-grandmother, and had my grandmother introduced to her by my grandfather. All of this in the same room. And we go to this house, and we go in the middle of this street, and I realize I don't belong here. I don't belong here. This isn't... I don't belong. Which is fine for me, because... You know, I'm lucky. I, I live in Australia. I've, I belong, you know, I've got amazing family. You know, I had a very, very lucky career. I'm in Australia. I got elected to the Australian Senate at 30. Like, you know, I, have, I know where I belong, but I, but I know I don't belong there. But this is the bit that worried me, right? My father, right, for him it's a lot harder question about where you belong. And going to Iran in a weird way made me demonstrate that I knew I didn't belong in Iran. But for my father... It's a lot harder because where do you belong? And also made me wonder, what happens to those, what happens if and when you leave? 
somewhere else in the world, and you come to Australia, and you're not accepted here, what happens to your identity then? What happens to you? And I think for people like my father, that's always been a lot harder because of who they are, because of age, because of culture, because of identity. Um, and I think a lot of people get lost uh, and they get lost and they, and they fall between between the cracks. And I, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but identity is such an important thing about who you are. And if you get lost between the cracks, what happens to you? Mm, yeah, that'd be pretty... So this got very deep yeah, no, all of a sudden. We're no, no, <laughs> being a lighthearted chat. No, 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 no. It's good. Yeah. It makes sense that um, you know your dad came later, so it's obviously going to be yeah. going to be harder. And he was a student activist. Yeah, uh, so they were hardcore kind of student lefties. Yeah. Did that inspire you to be uh, a politician? Well, it certainly played a role. So, um, like I said, my parents were really cool and like were way cooler than I am. So I remember <laughs> during my final year of school. Uh, like so I'm doing the, the New South Wales in Sydney it's called the HSC uh, but you know your final kind of um, uh, what's it called in Melbourne? Uh, VC VC yep so we're doing like our final kind of exams and my parents just moved to Cuba and at the time it seemed normal and I look back now and go that is weird shit right like, <laughs> like you know they left me with a house a car um, and they just kind of moved to Cuba and they said oh you'll be fine and um, uh, you know pursuing as I jokingly say the true form of socialism Um and for them, it was kind of like, this was their, their view on it. Their view was this. We gave up so much. We sacrificed everything. We did things that, you know, frankly, to be honest, ran small businesses, drove taxis, all the kind of things that migrants do for their kids, right? And we got to a point where my sister had kind of been out of school and I would come to the end of it. And it was like, okay, we can be ourselves again. This kind of project that was the, you know, supporting our children, Right? This project has come to an end, and um, you know now we can kind of go back to you know fi- finding who they are and, 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 and what they do. But um, but yeah, because they, they were they were very politically active, and I mean to be honest, they're probably further to the left of, of me, and they always have been. I mean they're members of the Labor Party now mainly because of me. I think they'd probably you know vote kind of Socialist Alliance if it wasn't for me. <laughs> but um, but yeah, look you know again. When we talk about fathers um, and uh, about parenting and all of this, at the end of the day, in politics, at the end of the day, doesn't matter what anyone tells you, the reality is we are all the product of our environment. We are all shaped by our environment. Now, the same environmental factors can make you different and make you the same, but anybody who tries to pretend these things don't matter uh, is either lying to you or lying to themselves. Mm-hmm. I also want to... Um take it back to your um, parenting now. So you're a politician and you yep. love the media and you're not only in the public eye but you're also probably being constantly scrutinised oh, in yeah, the yeah. public eye. So in 10 minutes this morning, I was looking on your Facebook, I found some trolling comments like, I beep, hate Sam and this just makes it rational and this bloke has an extraordinarily tarnished reputation and it brings no credit to be associated with him. So having millennial kids, they'll grow up on social yeah. media. Are you worried about the impact seeing um, stuff like hate yeah, like course, this. of course, and you have to be. And look, I mean, firstly, right, I'm in the ring, right? So I get it, right? Modern day, social media, politics, when you're in the ring, you're going to get punched, right? And there's a lot of hate out there. So it comes with the territory, you know, especially when you're politically active, right? Like I'm not, you know, and it's not just me. I mean, if you're, God, have a look at what they say about and Carl Stefanovic's kind of feed, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, like 
everyone, you're in the political field, you're going to get bashed. Um, and that's the reality of politics, right? So it's not... I probably get it a bit worse, um, partly because of you know, probably a little bit more high profile, partly by being um, Muslim, right? So I kind of naturally get the kind of anti-Islamic trolls. Um, women politicians get it even worse. Women politicians get all this kind of very sexually charged stuff, which is really horrible, right? The stuff the women get is just sickening. It's just sickening stuff, right? They'll get this racially charged kind of, you know... Um, uh, uh, you know, it kind of so not sexually charged kind of horrible stuff. But yes, you're right, and this is what raised me. Right, um, your kids see all of them, and they will. And the other thing that happened was, I um, I had a couple of my, uh, in hindsight, uh, um, I shouldn't have. Um, I made a couple of these kind of quirky videos with my my two daughters uh, about multinational tax avoidance yeah, and stealing the, lollies. The yeah, 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 like, yeah, it's all very kind of cutie stuff. And then. Mark Latham takes him and makes this video on his, like, Mark Latham's got this kind of insane website of, you know, anyway, he makes this video pretty much saying that I hate white people and that I hate my kids because I hate white people. Now, he went and got some random comment I'd made at some point in jest, which was, I'm sick and tired of all these kinds of rich white men um, talking about how their voices have been silenced uh, when they have their own radio shows. And it was kind of like a reference to the... Mark Latham's The Andrew Bolts and all that in the world going on about 18C and talking about how, you know, freedom of speech. And I feel like saying, you know, if you're a rich white bloke with your own TV show, your voice has not been silenced. Now, which is, you know, I think a true fact, right? Um, and then he turns around, but somehow converts that to, oh, he must hate his own children. And then following that, the hate you get. And the bit that freaked me out was I actually started getting some stuff in the mail, like actual physical mail, right? My address is all kind of private and this and that, but people know where you live, right? And so I actually started getting stuff in the physical mail, got a couple of bits. And it's one thing to kind of do the hate online, because I, I did something a bit quirky. I started going back and saying, okay, some of the people that are doing all this online hate, and they, and they say horrible things, you know, like about your children, and like, I'll give you an example, right? Um, apparently, and well, I think this may even be fact, I'm not sure, depending on if your faith is, I, I don't believe in God, but, but if he did, the Prophet Muhammad had a, one of his fourth wife was nine years old, right? Um, now, I'm non-practicing Muslim, I don't believe in God. Um, I don't believe in Allah, that's just me at a personal level. But, you know, I culturally identify being Muslim as part of my identity. And they said this stuff on Facebook that says, um, I hope your daughters get raped like Aisha was raped when she was nine. And then you'll learn about the true Islam and how horrible it is. And so you go, so how do people do that? So I did this exercise. I said, okay, I'm going to find out who these people are. I'm actually going to trace it back. Because right? think about social media these days. Is you can do that, right? Mm -hmm. like, and the thing is, they're not hiding. So you look at So I have this impression of the people that do this hate. Are these kind of fat blokes in their mid-50s sitting at home on mum's computer, downstairs Bogan. in the basement, you know, eating cheesels without a shirt on, in between you know, trawling porn, sending hate, right? And playing computer games all day. And they're not. They're normal people. Like, you know, one was a paramedic. I found a school teacher. And you wonder, what happens? They get up in the morning. Like, how do you have that much hate in your heart, right? And social media is like that. But the worrying thing from a kid's perspective is, yeah, my kids see it. And, and they're very young now. They're six and four. But they're going to grow up with a politician uh, as a father. And you're going to grow up in, in... And it is all very, very, very public. Mm -hmm. And what is... And I don't know the answer to this, right? What does that do to them? And what does that do to their sense of identity? 
I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that, but I think it'll be fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, someone in your, uh, one of your colleagues, MP Terry Butler, just published a book about the difficulties of trying to keep personal and family life separate from politician yeah, you can't. life. And you, you can't. can't. I haven't had a chance. I've got a copy of it. It's in Sydney. I'm, I, Terry's an amazing friend of mine. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But the reality is you cannot. Right? And especially in this modern world of social media and this and that, you know, you can't walk down the street and, you know, you know, I mean, like, give me an example, right? Um, I get drunk at a bar and disgrace myself. It's going to be in the papers. My kids are going to read it, right? And you have to accept that. That's the reality of the world we now live in. And, um, you know, and some people will say, you know, that's good. You know, so it should be. You should have that kind of scrutiny. Some people say it's bad. Whether it's good or bad doesn't really matter. It's the reality that we live in. Mm. And what about your parents as well? I know uh, in the Australian story, your mum had a Google alert. Oh, yeah, so, terrible. Oh, the worst. Yeah, especially, like, you know, so about a year ago, I got caught up in a kind of a scandal, right? And, my, well, it's funny because for them, it's perspective too. So I get caught up in this donation scandal and I think it's the end of the world, right? I'm like, this is my life is over, this, that, blah, blah, blah. And my mother, who has a lot more perspective than, than me, obviously, uh, says to me, she goes to me, oh, Look, Sam, it's it not good, but uh, back in Iran, they probably have you shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all relative, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I've got some cameras at the front of my house. But again, the kids are so young now. Uh, Hannah and Eloise are so young. They haven't quite, none of it makes sense to them anymore, right? They vaguely know occasionally people come up to dad when he's there and talk to him, but you know, what, is it, what do they care? Um, where, what that'll be in 10 years, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know. And look, let's be honest. It's probably not healthy for them. It's probably not a good thing, right? I mean, I can spin it that, oh, why it's all good, but but no, it's probably not. And um, again, it goes back to that, uh, a point I was making earlier, which is sacrifice and, and, and fathers. And when you're in public life, you know, you are asking your kids to make a sacrifice. And normally, the father-kid relationship is one where, you know, the father is sacrificing for the kid. And in these scenarios in public life, it's the kid that's sacrificing for the father. And um, that weighs on you. Yeah, I can imagine I can imagine it does, but you're going to keep being a well, senator, yeah, Sam? Yeah, well, I, think, I hope so. I mean, as long as they'll let me. I mean, they, they haven't <laughs> quite given me my breakfast radio show in Sydney, which is the dream. Um, uh, you know, Dasher in the mornings. Um, uh, you heard it here first. But, um, uh, but yeah, look, look I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, uh, but... Again, you know, it is going to. Um, it, it takes its toll. It really, really takes its toll. Mm-hmm. And and you have a new book out. One yes, so one of halal a of a story. Um, I just want to quickly before I cut you off. Did your is a halal snack packs a staple part of your kids' diet? Uh, unfortunately, it is. So <laughs> I really worries that my kids actually know how to make a halal snack pack, and uh, which is a very, very worrying kind of uh, uh, development. Um, but look, I mean, the, the, the book itself talks obviously a lot about um, kids, and, and, and uh, I've got a story in there actually about how the most dangerous place I've been to in my life was a child's nativity scene, because try and stop the parents pushing each other to take photos. Um, but um, look, it tells a story about obviously coming from Iran, about being a migrant, and kind of a very, very different take on Baltics. Hi. This is Luke's father, and you're listening to Vata Figures on Sin Nation.
Unfortunately, I don't have the rights to podcast the music I play on Sid Nation. I guess that just means you'll need to listen live every Wednesday from 7.30pm for all the wonderful dad tracks. Just stream it at sin.org.au or listen on your digital radio. And you're back listening to Fata Figures on Sin Nation. That song was Yotho Yindu, Yindi with Treaty, a great dance track, and the band boasts Aboriginal members and Balanda members, which means non-Aboriginal. And that song was actually written after Bob Hawke visited the Northern Territory and made a statement that there would be a treaty between black and white Australians. Before the break, we heard a long chat with Senator Sam Dastiari. He's a passionate man and full of energy, I think he raised some good points about kids just wanting to fit in and the identity struggles of migrants who come to Australia as adults, the sacrifices they make for the children. And I can actually see Sam does worry about the impact his work as a politician will have on his young family. One important culture in Australia is the Indigenous population, although they only represent about 3% of our population, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the rightful owners of Australia. So on the episode about different cultured dads, I think it's important to speak to an Indigenous parent. Our next guest is on the line, Mark Mayo. He's one of nine brothers and grew up in the Northern Territory. He's the dad to two young kids. Welcome to Father Figures, Mark. G'day, thanks for having me on, Victor. My pleasure. So, Mark, one of nine brothers. Am I correct yeah. in saying no sisters? How is that growing up? Oh, really good. Yeah, and it's actually one of uh, ten brothers. So I've got, I've got nine brothers. Oh wow! And uh, you all played for the same rugby team. Yes. Yeah. We all, when we were younger, we all had one. I think, but I think the most we had on the field at one time was seven of us, which we got in the local paper. So that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> yeah. how many different ethnic backgrounds in your family? Oh, so we got a we got a few in our in, in in my family is we've got Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and then we've got German and Welsh and English and uh, Australian as well. And that is that quite normal. That's quite normal up here. I think like um, you have um, we're called territory specials. And and I guess there is a great diversity among different Indigenous communities and societies in Australia, each with its own mixture of cultures, customs and language. Do you see a lot of cultural differences in fathering? Yeah, in in the Northern Territory, in Darwin especially, you see lots of different things because there are lots of different groups that are up here. So you, you do see, I guess, based on more on where they've come from, their culture and how they they do things and how they talk to their kids and how their kids will talk back to them. But, yeah, it's just one of those one of those places where uh, you get a, quite a big diversity. And we've always had, like, I grew up with a lot of uh, Greek kids here, big population of Greeks here. I think it was the second biggest outside Melbourne at one point. So, and they're raised quite differently. Mm-hmm. And, and how important yeah. is it as a father to teach your kids about your Indigenous background or their cultural background? Oh, it, it, it's really important to uh, teach them about that. Um, it just helps them understand where they're from and, you know, where I'm coming from as well and what I see and how they might, what they see in the media and how things are portrayed, they can actually look back and go, well, that's not always the case. I'm, you know, I'm Indigenous, I'm not like that. Or, you know, I have Chinese heritage, I'm, 
I'm like this or that, or I like Chinese food, but it doesn't mean I'm just because I'm Chinese, you know, these sort of things that go on. So we, I have a strong emphasis around it, especially when it, the topic gets brought up, we sort of discuss about that, or I say to them, you know, you're part this or you're part that. And, and yeah. do they embrace it, your kids? Yeah, yeah, they, they do, and they, they do is more you sort of remind them and introduce them to it. I think they feel some connection to it, and that's the important bit of being connected to their culture and connected to where they are at the time and what it means to them. So, yeah, they, they start, they'll start saying to me and say, oh, I'm Indigenous or I have Chinese, especially, you know, you see sports players or they see um, the dancers down at one of the festivals. When they say, oh, I'm a part of that. Um, and my earlier guest, Sam Dastiari, spoke of the importance of identity and struggles that some migrants have. Um, and I know your wife is Chinese and the Northern Territory is an extremely multicultural state. Do you see people or, or your children ever struggle with understanding their identity? In, in some ways they have. Um, when growing up here, it was, it was a bit difficult for a lot of people, especially the Indigenous people with the Stolen Generation. So a lot of them had lost contact with their past and their history. And that, so it was quite, quite difficult for them to sort of, you know, have that connection, I guess, is what we talked about earlier, to their, to their cultural past. But I think a lot of people spend a lot of time up here finding that and connecting with it and it being important for them to, you know, have that connection and go to festivals and there's Indigenous culture around here. And I see that the same with a lot of migrants that come as well. Some of them have been displaced from their country, but they, through festivals and through community groups up here and through dance, they get that connection back, and I think that's, it's really important to know your past. Mm. Do you think it would be harder for um, Indigenous families to, to get that connection in, in bigger cities outside of Darwin, like Melbourne and Sydney? I, I think within within their own community, I think they're all right. But what, what, what I've found, that the times I have travelled down to, to Melbourne and talked to some of um, my family and friends I have down there, is that I guess they become more isolated as they sort of move into the bigger cities. I know it sounds... It sounds different because, you, you know, there's more people, but more isolated in terms of people understanding their culture and where they're from. And it's also because they haven't had that connection with that, you know, Australia culture as well in terms of the Indigenous culture. So I think that there's that... It's getting better with a lot of things going on. They have the reconciliation, you know, week, and then we've got NAIDOC week, and we have lots more Indigenous, I guess, identity programs out there for people to see. Mm, mm. Well, uh, Indigenous sporting stars as well are often recognised in the media for their achievements, you know, Cathy Freeman or in AFL, the Rioli and Long families. But as a father, and I know you're an acad- academic and, and an Indigenous role model, sort of how important is it for you to place an emphasis on education and is there enough of it uh, in the Indigenous community? Um, I think it's one, yeah, it's very important. I find that's one of the big things that that I push with my kids. It's education. Um, you know, the better they do with their education through schooling and year 12, the more opportunities they'll have in the future, whether they go to uni or pursue a trade or something else they want to do, start a business, those sort of things. It just gives them that foundation. And up here and and around Australia, I think it is it is improving a lot more. There is a lot more emphasis in Indigenous people on... Um, education. Um, that's one of the, in the closing the gap, education was one of the only things that showed some improvement. So people are putting more on that and there's 
a lot of kids are getting, um, especially Indigenous kids, are getting more support through school. So I think it's really great. Mm-hmm. And and do, have you sort of seen that change from when you were growing up to now being a dad and, and trying to sort of teach your kids that, you know, education is, is really good? Yeah, yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of changes through when when I went through school. A lot of um, my schooling were, you know, we weren't expected, the Indigenous people weren't expected to do that well anyway, so we were sort of putting a lot of the remedial classes and things like that. But, you know, having said that, my children, it's more based on their abilities. So they're in the class with other kids and what scores they get, it's purely based on you know, their, their academic performance, not on who they are or what people perceive their, you know, abilities to be. So, yeah, I, I really like the way my kids are going through school now. Mm, yeah, that's good to hear. And yeah. you did, uh, you are an infectious disease senior researcher and an, and an academic at the Menzies School of Health Research in Darwin. Um, were, did you have a lot of, of barriers sort of trying to, to get that and get that education? Yeah, yeah, there was um, there was quite a few things. So when I I just I managed to struggle through <laughs> gets my year twelve, and then I, I got into uni, and uh, I, I managed to get a job at the Menzies School of Health of Research in Darwin, and that was a traineeship, and that was really good. And and what helped me there it was it was a bit of a struggle for me, you know, studying and working and trying to get my you know, I guess. In my family, there wasn't many people that had gone to uni, so it was, one, I'd made it to uni, but then I'd had to work and study at the same time, which was quite a bit of pressure, as well as you have external family pressures, which which everyone has, so there's quite a few things. But one thing I would say is that I had really good um, mentors and advocates for me at Menzies, and both Indigenous and non-Indigenous that helped support me through uni and kept me going and showed faith in me, and... I think um, their face has been returned in work that I do and what I achieve and what I put back into um, not just Minzies but into our Darwin community. And did you yeah. learn anything from your, your own father? Yeah, yeah, my dad. Well, my dad was the one that actually found the adverts for the job, so he, <laughs> I had to thank, uh, yeah, thank him for that. So he actually got me in there, and I've been in Menzies now for 25 years, been working there. But what I learned from dad was that he... He would always, um, you know, be there for us. He'd always try his best to be there. I remember one time, he, you know, we had a rugby final and my dad had to work and he's a fiery, uh, so a fireman, and what he did was he um, he jumped in the fire truck uh, during his uh, dinner break and with a couple of the boys and drove down and watched us play. And so things like that, my dad would just go a little bit extra just to make us feel like he was there and he was present. And that's one thing I'd sort of pass on to other you know, fathers and that is the main thing is to be there and be present, you know, in their life. And my dad, one thing I guess I picked up from my dad is he was always telling me that he loves me, so I always found that really good, and I say that to my kids each day. Yeah, I love it. And uh, thanks so much, Mark, for coming on the show. That's probably all we've got time for, but I think you've got a a great story, a positive story, and let's hope that uh, it can keep improving for Indigenous fathers and uh, the community. Thanks very much, and thanks for your support, Victor. No worries, Mark. Well, there we have heard from both dads tonight who come from different backgrounds, but they, I guess, put an emphasis on understanding your identity and being a good parent. And I think that's important for everyone living in Australia. There is a wonderfulness of multiculturalism in Australian 
society. Fathers come in different forms, with different faiths, different cultures and different abilities. But I think it doesn't matter where you're from, being a dad is being a dad. We are running out of time, so I'm going to have to leave it there. I think the guests have opened up some thought-provoking topics with our own stories, so thanks for that. Time to wrap it up with our much-loved segment. Hey, do you think your dad's funny? No. No? No, nah, no way. Yeah, not really. No. Hey, do you think your dad's funny? Oh, no. Ah, no way. No? No. Not really? <laughs> no. No way. No. 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 Not particularly. <laughs> does your dad think he's funny? Of course. Yes. Yeah, he really does. Yes, I think he thinks he's hilarious. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Does your dad think he's funny? Yeah, he does. Yes. Yes, he does. Yeah, I guess. Yep. Doesn't every dad? Yes. Yes. Yes! Is your dad a fashionista? What's that? A fashionista. He loves his fedora. Oh, yes. Aren't they all? He thinks he is. No way. Nah, he dresses lame. Certainly not. No way, Jose. Jeans and joggers every day. A Crocs cool? Hell no. He tries to be. Oh, he thinks he does. Nah. Does your dad say things that annoy you? Every day. Almost every day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, what? Oh, yes, actually, quite regularly. Yeah. Every day. Always. Yes. Uh, does your dad say things that annoy you? Yeah, quite regularly. Yeah. Yes. Yes! Yes! <laughs> yes. Every day. Every. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Two dads on tonight, and being a politician, I think I had Sam freaking out a little when I mentioned hard-hitting questions. He was ready to dance around them, but I think he is somewhat relieved and excited about Father Figure's tough question time. Have a listen to the dad's insights into jokes, dadisms, and fashion. To finish, um, some hard-hitting questions. And Let's as, go. As a politician, I know yeah. you're, you're used to them. Oh, no, I'm used to avoiding them. That's right. I'm used to avoiding them. <laughs> well, you can't avoid them. Yeah, yeah, we're here. Uh, so, we're here. number one, yeah. favourite or your go-to dad joke? Oh, okay, okay. Um, this is terrible. It is, um, uh, what is it with airline food anyway? I guess that's why they call it plain food. I use, okay, that's terrible, but I use that always when I'm giving speeches and it goes dead quiet to kind of, yes, make a joke, but yes, okay. That's probably what bad. dad bad. jokes are used for. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, one of the favourite dad jokes is, um, what do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back when you throw it? What's that, the answer to Oh, uh, a stick. A stick. <laughs> not, not bad, not bad. <laughs> and any dad sayings? Uh, Dad saying, I guess it's in, in the morning when the kids are going off to school. It's, um, I always ask them, have you packed everything? As well as your positive attitude because school is cool. Yeah. <laughs> do they uh, <laughs> roll their eyes at that one? Exactly, yes. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> and they say, see you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, well my, my only classic is um, uh, whatever your mother said, I've agreed with it already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. The, uh, one I've highlighted is Ask Your Mother as well. Ask but, Your Mother. Ask um, Your Mother. And you're often seen in suits, but yep. some dad fashion, something that gets the kids a bit embarrassed. Oh, terrible. I'm terrible. I am. Um, uh, I got to a stage, actually, where I just 
kind of shower, walk around the house naked. And um, um, my daughter goes to school and says, oh, Daddy always has his penis out. And we scared the shit out of me. Like, oh my God, like, like this is get, gets repeated back to me like half in jest. And I realized these are not good things for people to go around and be saying about a politician. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, jocks, baby. Jocks, jocks. jocks. Uh, I need to get to the underwear stage. Oh, the dad fashion. I guess um, the, the daggy one that I have or the one that the kids sometimes look at and go, are you wearing that again, is my um, Hawaiian shirt. It's a red shirt with nice big flowers on it that I wear every Christmas for the past 12 years. Wow, long time. <laughs> well, it is, it's, it's, it is hot up in the Northern Territory, so I'm sure you're allowed to wear a Hawaiian shirt every now and then. That's right, yep. I tell them it is a tropic, so... <laughs> I love to hear a politician is just like any other dad. And in, in case you were confused, I did pre-record um, Mark's answers earlier this morning, but he was just on live on before. Um, we're basically out of time, so I'll fly through my answers tonight. Dad joke of the week, and dads just love any opportunity to be a smartass. Let's get some theme music to play me out. Hey, Dad, I'm going to put the kettle on. And what does he say? It won't fit. Shocking. No cup of tea for Dad after that. My dad isn't tonight, and I think it fits in well with the show called Farter Figures. It doesn't smell if you like that smell. Yep, Dad's often used this saying when you're complaining about a bad smell, which is actually usually them letting a fart rip on the couch. Come on, Dad. No one likes that smell. And finally, the always adored Dad fashion. I've got an accessory this evening. And what is important for dads when choosing accessories, or any piece of fashion for that matter, practicality. Whether that's the practical aspect of not getting dressed around the house like Senator Dastiari, or the practical aspect of a daggy accessory. I've highlighted big keychains, lanyards, and phone belt clips before on dad fashion, but I think this accessory is the mother of all practicality, dorkiness, and dad transition lenses. You know, those glasses that tint according to the amount of sunlight. Transition lenses are just so nerdy. And the funny thing is, dads love showing off these lenses stepping out of the office so they turn into sunglasses, stepping inside so they're normal glasses. They'll be bragging about their transition glasses, but they are just shocking. Please just buy two pairs and save the embarrassment. And with that... Another show is done. Don't forget the competition because you can win a cup with the world's best farter on it. Great merch and give the show some support with a review on iTunes. This episode will be up on iTunes, Facebook and sin.org.au later on the week. Just search Farter Figures. Thanks to all you wonderful listeners and a big thanks to our guests. I love you all and some sad news. Next week is the final episode of the season and this year, but we have some great guests to close out a wonderful three months. Any Letters and Numbers fans out there? Well, I've got Letters and Numbers co-host and the man responsible for creating the toughest crosswords in your newspaper coming on for a chat. Wordsmith David Astle will be joining Farter Figures next week and another huge guest is going to spend the hour next to me in the studio for the final episode. I know this guest very well. I think he's listening tonight and I think he's actually nervous. Yes, my own dad, my own father figure and he is definitely a farter figure will be helping me wrap up the season in the studio. We'll be discussing role reversals when fathers get older. When dads become elderly citizens, is it their own offspring taking over the parenting role? I'll be even calling his dad about it, so a real generational affair. 
It's coming to a close next week, but join me. I'm pumped at 7.30 on Sid Nation. I'm going to leave you with an artist who sadly passed away this week. Charles Bradley died from cancer age 68 last Saturday. He had a tough life never knowing his dad and being abandoned by his mother at 14 years old. I really wanted to play tribute to him tonight, but he isn't a dad and doesn't sing about his dad. But he does actually sing the voice of Krumpus on the TV show American Dad. So that's my connection to Farter Figures. Not that I need a reason to play the great man and artist. The late Charles Bradley with The World Is Going Up In Flames. Catch you next week. And please, tell your dad, tell your friends, tell your friends' dads, and tell your dad's friends. Hi, it's Victor's dad. You've been listening to another episode of Farter Figures on Sin Nation. <laughs>